Good evening and welcome to episode 57 of The Political Mic. The House approves a ban on import of Russian oil. President Biden announced this week that the United States will be withdrawing completely uh, from its from, from all Russian uh, sources of oil. Uh, Vice President Harris finds herself center stage of the Ukraine crisis. The White House is set to stay in Supreme Court suspense until after uh, Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson's hearings. And uh, we also found out that the RNC is suing January 6th Select Committee over subpoena um, to a key vendor, amongst other lawsuits uh, stemming from Trump White House officials like Stephen Miller. Uh, here to help me break it all down are five, well, soon to be five, when Cassandra joins us. But right now, for the time being, four, uh, three distinguished gentlemen, um, each rock stars in their own right, each very astute and very well-informed. And I'm so excited to have uh, these individuals on um, this evening uh, for such a, an, an eventful week. Um, and so just to start us off, we have Mr. Colby, <clears throat> Mr. Colby Matlock, who is his first time being on the show. I'm excited to have him on. Uh, he's a Delaware native, um, also a senior at Oakwood University, majoring in public policy with a minor in chemistry, uh, currently serving as the vice president of Oakwood's uh, Political Science Club, United Coll uh, Collegiate Black Scholars, UCBS. Uh, he has a strong interest in policy formation and politics. And in his spare time, he enjoys keeping up with current events and listening to music. Colby, welcome to the program. I'm excited to have you on. Thank you so much for having me. Awesome. We also have uh, Mr. Zach. Uh, Tolan, it's been a long time. It's been a minute since I've had him, but he's always a treat to have uh, once he is on the show. Um, Zach uh, Tolan is now a third year Juris Doctorate candidate at Howard University School of Law uh, with an eye towards public interest, uh, law and public uh, criminal defense in particular. Zach, it's awesome to have you back. I think the last time I had you, must have I must have been in my third year. So it's been a few months, <laughs> but um, it's, it's great to have you back. Um, and then we also have uh, Miss Cassandra Knopf, a great friend of mine who just joined. Um, so excited to have her back on the show. Um, she is, I'm so, sorry, having some issues here. Oh yes, uh, she's always been interested, always been interested in Asian politics. Uh, and this dates back to at least as you know, far back to the Bush administration writing uh, during the Iraq war about her concerns during that time. Uh, she has pursued several exciting opportunities, mostly regarding environmental law and environmental justice. Uh, in fall 2019, at Howard University School of Law, she worked in the office of Kansas Representative Sharice DeVete, uh, where she became uh, intimately familiar with the legislative process. Um, she then worked for the United States Environmental Protection Agency um, in the fall of 2020. Um, she's currently happily working. Um, as Cassandra, update us. What is your current position now? I'm excited. Uh, I want you to share the news. Go ahead. Uh, I'm now a staff attorney at the firm Chapman and Cutler, the focus on finance. And um, I am now learning and becoming proficient in uh, commercial lending and um, banking. So it is a very different field than what I trained in, um, but it's really fascinating work. Um, it's really nice to finally like be in the workforce after having spent three years in law school, which I'm sure um, everyone on the call, I believe, can relate to. So, um, yeah, and in that role, uh, there is one attorney who works on ESG, which is Environmental, Social, and Governance, um, and she and I are currently working together to um, work on like um, distributing, essentially. Um, little flyers regarding ESG to our um, clients 
as well as developing an ESG kind of um, policy internally, I suppose. We don't have a practice group yet, but that's what my dream is. So we'll see. And Cassandra was my uh, study partner for a few classes. So very proud and very honored to be able to say, look, I've got friends in high places, folks. Um, and then we've got Nate Honoré, who's also going to be launching into his legal career soon, uh, 3L, a 3L at Quinnipiac University School of Law. Uh, so we've got an awesome panel tonight. I want to start off being that, you know, the, the, the increasing cost of, of, of these gas prices seems to be at the forefront of a lot of Americans' minds, at the forefront of my mind. And so I want to go ahead and ask uh, you guys, uh, how is the Biden administration handling the increasing cost of gas and inflation amid the crisis in Ukraine. Anyone can join in. Well, I did see that uh, he announced he was releasing, I want to say uh, between the US and the EU, 60 million uh, barrels of reserve oil. And I think half of that was uh, from American reserves. Um, I personally don't have a car and don't feel the effects of this as keenly as someone else might. So I don't think I'm in a very good position to talk about how this negatively affects me. I think if I was someone who had a daily commute or whose job relied on it, it would be, you know, this might be really horrible, but I, I don't feel it. So I'm not in a great position to say. <laughs> and what's amazing to me with this whole situation is I remember when, um, I think it was this week when some NBC reporters were asking average folks, you know, what do you think about having to pay, you know, on the East coast it's like, now we're getting to $5 at, at the pump at the West coast, you're looking at $7 and it looks like it's going to rise, raise to $9 soon. And I was surprised to hear some of the folks say, look, if it means that I'm supporting some of these refugees, big that a children's hospital was bombed, right? You had kids who couldn't, be placed in beds, having to be lifted into these trains to be carried off into new, you know nearby countries like Poland. Um, if this means having to support folks like that, then I'm going to go ahead and just bite the bullet here. And when I'm looking at Court's um, you know website, they reported that overall 71% of Americans supported a ban on Russian oil, even if it resulted in higher gas prices. Um, and this was conducted. This poll was conducted between the fourth and the sixth of this month. Um, oil was trading around $130 uh, a barrel on Tuesday, while a regular gallon of gasoline was, an, was on average $4.17 at the pump. Um, it's, it's, it's crazy to see, you know, sometimes, you know, we would, we would assume that being that people are so um, upset about the inflation, the, the uh, supply chain issues, and now gas prices, we would think that the response would be more selfish and more self-centered in terms of what I can experience here in the United States. But it's surprising to see the same spirit, I think, that existed during the, the Great Depression, uh, during World War II, and even during the late 1970s, uh, where folks are willing to sacrifice. You know, in the late 70s, during the Carter administration, of course, folks were asked to cut back on their energy usage. Um, and now we're seeing that kind of trend again. Uh, what do you guys think about how the Biden administration responded um, and I want to ask this in the context of the midterm elections coming up. Well, um, <clears throat> if I can step in here, I think, frankly, the Biden administration has done the best it possibly could have in the situation. Uh, think of the options, either keep buying Russian oil, in which case 
on the one hand, we're telling Vladimir Putin to stop waging an illegal war invading Ukraine, but we're not going to do anything about it. We're going to keep funding it for him. Or we stop buying Russian oil and the gas prices go up. Uh, frankly, gas prices have been going up. My, I, I mean, I'm sort of dating myself, but I remember when uh, it went over a dollar a gallon and that was my dad wouldn't stop complaining for two years about that. Now we're shooting up to about five dollars a gallon. And uh, frankly, it's never going to really go back down. Doesn't matter if we started buying from Russia again. Oil is a limited resource. We're running out of it. Uh, and the main sources we're getting it from now, especially in the United States, are Russia, Saudi Arabia and Venezuela, all of which are countries that mostly the United States is not getting along all that well with, but pretends to get along well with so we can buy oil. Uh, to me, it seems like uh, the, the better move here is to focus on what we can do to get us, ourselves off of the oil teat. Um, I, I think I hope thing that uh, I'm on the same page with Cassandra here. I know she's the environmental expert here. Uh, you know, it seems that the issue should really be less about why aren't we lowering gas prices and more? Why aren't we switching away from gas usage, period? Um, but uh, it, I mean, to the original question, I think they're handling it perfectly because the two options really are keep buying the oil or stop buying the oil. And if we keep buying the oil, that doesn't make any sense whatsoever in current context. Uh, and frankly, I think that would be worse in the midterm elections because no one can get on board with the government that keeps buying oil from the man who seems to be trying to start World War III. Uh, whereas you got some people who are going to make an excuse saying, let's vote for somebody else because the gas prices went up. Yeah. And in the end, it's better. No, valid points. And, and President Biden's announcement, um, you know, that the United States will now um, come off of Russian oil altogether was a complete shift for the White House, which just days ago expressed fear that an import ban would send gas prices skyrocketing. So the, the, the White House wasn't really 100% definitive in going in this direction at first. Officials were hopeful to enact a ban in lockstep with European allies. You've seen a huge push from the administration to um, have a cohesive, uh, multilateral approach about this um, so that countries, not just in, in North America, but around the globe in Europe, uh, can also feel the effects together. Um, and there's more of a consensus that way, you know, kind of like one that was built in the aftermath of 9-11. But they are adjusting to what has become an overwhelming bipartisan interest on Capitol Hill and within corners of the administration in ridding U.S. markets of Russian oil as Vladimir Putin continues this assault on Ukraine. Um, and so the, new, the administration's newfound interest in an import uh, ban is motivated in part by a desire to avoid a protracted debate over bipartisan oil ban legislation uh, that could include even more unwelcome provisions, further tying the administration's hands diplomatically. Um, Nate, I want to ask you, in terms of you know the United States' role, I know there's been a lot of push for the United States to issue to from Ukrainians uh, to go ahead and impose a no-fly zone. Now, I heard uh, you know. Admirals who served in the Obama administration said that's basically uh, just, you know, the United States throwing itself into a, a, a hot conflict with Russia. We, that's not a, a, an option that's on the table. Um, but in terms of taking us off Russian oil completely, you, you've heard Vladimir Putin call these kind of sanctions and these kind of moves aggressive. He, Vladimir Putin himself said that this is not great for diplomacy. Ironically, he even said, you know, he even condemned the United Nations uh, for taking these, you know, indirect but yet 
consequential actions. Um, basically trying to say, look, if you're going to do something, do it, basically. <laughs> this kind of challenge. I'm wondering if this move by the Biden administration is going to either dampen um, the United States' role in, in, in trying to serve as like a referee in this situation, or will it um, actually benefit uh, the Ukrainians in the long run? Well, the Biden administration has kind of gone through this strategy as it relates to Ukraine of both being measured and being very upfront. So, you know, starting with uh, just announcing Russia is intent on attacking Ukraine and Russia will do it after the, right after the Olympics end. Uh, Russia denied that an invasion was imminent. Ukraine denied that an invasion was imminent. Even the British denied that an invasion was imminent. But, you know, as the, as, uh, the Olympics wrapped up, we saw uh, Putin announce his recognition of the um, uh, breakaway uh, regions there, the Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics. Uh, we saw him then uh, announce that he was sending troops on a humanitarian mission, and then he started, you know, firing missiles. And, you know, every step of the way, he was met with a kind of measured, uh, you know, resistance, but not a super aggressive one. So uh, I don't think Biden is going to uh, announce a no-fly zone unless things change drastically. Um, the generals are right. That is effectively a declaration of war. No-fly zone means that the U.S. would personally take responsibility for shooting down every military airplane in that entered Ukrainian airspace. And that's not necessarily a situation we wanna find ourselves in if we're not gonna be fighting in the war ourselves. Um, but as for Putin, he was prepared for, uh, after 2014, after his annexation of the Crimea Peninsula, he was prepared for um, a kind of unilateral uh, retribution. He was prepared to kind of act on his own. I don't think though that he was prepared in this stage. He wasn't, especially after the past administration that undermined NATO at every step prepared for a strong NATO to kind of unify and say, you know, you know, the buck stops here. Um, I don't think he was very prepared for the rest of the international condemnation, countries that don't have a stake in what happens in Ukraine either way that still came on the side of the U.S. And I also don't think he was prepared for China to not back him because uh, China has not necessarily supported or opposed, China hasn't opposed him but they haven't supported him either because it's really not in the best interest. It, well, it kind of actually is in the best interest of the Chinese to support Russia financially by kind of trading against the, uh, the ruble now that it's you know, fallen apart, but it's not really in China's best interest to support Putin as far as his recognition and his cause for this war, because if uh, they support his recognition of these breakaway regions that most of the world considers to be within Ukraine, you know, what's to stop the US and the West from uh, then saying, okay, we support uh, Tibetan independence, we support uh, independence in the Xinjiang region, we support uh, Taiwan independence and Hong Kong independence. So China has kind of kept themselves, and I don't think Putin expected that. And and look at the devaluation of the Russian currency. You know, and, and the more we get further along in this saga, the more um, Putin has to grapple with having to justify to his own people why they're doing this. You've got, you know, at first he was trying to use Tucker Carlson and Trump and, and Pompeo's praise to say, this is how all Americans feel. Well, no, that's not how all Americans feel. You've seen it in the response. You've seen it uh, from social media. And you've got in Zelensky, uh, a leader who's harnessing and using all the tools of the 21st century, getting on social media, repeating the phrase, I'm here. And this man has, um, 
you know, a death sentence on his head by Putin wants to kill this man. And Zelensky is still out there saying, you know, and he quoted, I think it was a line from a movie saying, I don't need a ride. I need ammunition. And, you know, the, 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 the defiance of Putin is, is just galvanizing dem democratic states all around the world. And Zelensky now becoming the face of democracy, uh, ironically, who seemed to kind of be this accidental president, someone who was a comedian, someone who uh, was in these sketch comedy shows in, in Ukraine, someone who voiced Paddington Bear, uh, the Ukrainian version. And, and now you have someone who's, you know, engaged in the, in the warfare, while Putin is now, you know, from what I've heard from NBC reports, you know, frantically, you know, going into, you know, his office in the Kremlin, not sure about how things are going, constantly looking for updates, increasingly being more and more displeased about the developments that are going on in that region and um, how it's being perceived around the world. It, it just seems like it, in terms of public opinion, is it's a no-brainer. But there is that question mark, how does this end? You know, I mentioned last week, you know, you're talking about Putin has a, a reputation for winning. Chechnya in 1999, Georgia 2008. Crimea, Nate, you, you talked about that in 2014. This is someone who has a, he, he's accustomed to winning at this point. And so, you know, legitimately, I, I don't think there's any more reason for him to feel as if this would be any different. Yet he's running into an, uh, a, a tougher fight than he ever bargained for. And then you mentioned the Chinese. The Chinese want to do <laughs> to Taiwan what he's doing already in uh, trying to do with Korea, uh, Ukraine. And you know, the Chinese, of course, they're trying to make this their century, you know, being that the 20th century was an American century. Um, and they're looking at the, the the response from around the world. Is it worth, you know, burning down all the ties that you built? You're talking about Boris Yeltsin and what he bought to the United States, to, to, to Russia in terms of bringing all these capitalist uh, companies, McDonald's, Starbucks, all these things. And in a matter of two weeks, all these things being upended. It's just, it's, it's amazing. Kobe, have anything to add? Yeah, we uh, touched on a lot of the topics. Um, I definitely want to say, uh, just pick, uh, piggybacking off of the last thing that you said, um, one thing that I thought was very interesting, um, keeping up with the times within the last few days, is just how many companies have been um, pulling back from Russia. I mean, I was just literally reading down the list and I had to write some of them down because it was a lot, but they had Amazon, Netflix, uh, Shell, Visa, MasterCard, Disney, McDonald's. Um, so when I look at all those companies that's kind of pulling back, um, even going back to like what you were talking about with the gas um, prices and inflation, um, I do believe, too, even on that front, that the Biden administration is doing everything that they possibly can within um, the situation that we're going in with. Um, because for the most part, um, similar to what uh, Mr. Tolan said over here, um, if you continue to buy gas and you continue to buy oil from Russia and you support that, um, it's, it's just very, very questionable. And with everything that is kind of being pulled back out, it just makes sense to just say, you know, we're trying to do the best we can um, within the situation and uh, just kind of look around and see what's going on. So, you know, the, the thing that's amazing to me is that in spite of all that's been lost in terms of, you know, the democratization of the country, you know, you've got a whole generation of people who are born in Russia, who have been accustomed to a lot of the things that we in the United States have been accustomed to, you know, the brands, the, the you know, the capitalist companies being able to engage in these things, in these markets. Now, all of that, of course, coming to a halt. And still, what's crazy to me is the fact that Russian data still shows that a majority of the people still support this war. 
um, February 27th, that reached a peak of 70%. Um, but, you know, it's still high. And and then you contrast that with United States uh, support, support for Ukraine, 78%, the majority of Americans, 78%. And, you know, folks have been saying all the time, you know, this is the most bipartisanship we've seen in a long time on any one particular issue. And so my question is, you know, in your views, why do Russians' polls still show a majority support among Russians for or against the Ukraine? Now, keep in mind, I mean, those who were protesting against this war ended up getting beaten and thrown in prisons. So I'm still wondering about the legitimacy of these polls. But in your view, if we're going to take these polls at face value, okay, why would you, I, I guess, how would you rationalize and say, okay, this is why the majority of the people, in spite of all that's been going on, um, in terms of their public image, in terms of what they their their way of life has been upended, why is there why is support still there for this? Well, if we took the polls at face value, and again, I'm not so sure that they're accurate because I myself have you know seen the you know videos of Russians taking to the streets in Moscow and Saint Petersburg and all of Russia's major cities. So I'm not so sure that this war is is as popular as uh, uh, internal polling may suggest, but. Uh, if it is, I would guess that this is, you know, a war of expansion. You know, this is, people say that it's about uh, restoring the Soviet Union. That's not quite right. It's about restoring the boundaries of the Russian Empire, you know, with, except this time Putin is the Romanovs and, you know, everyone else is basically the same player. Um, so kind of restoring, you know, it's a nationalist cause. It's restoring uh, Russia's face and Russia's standing with the world to a point where, you know, where Russia was either the most powerful or second most powerful country in Europe or the world, Russia has fallen since the decline, since the end of the Soviet Union. Um, but now this is about kind of restoring Russia's face uh, to the rest of the world. I would guess, of course, assuming that these numbers are accurate, which I'm not so sure that they are. That's a good point. And, and um, you know, even when in your response, um, it's amazing to see the the way in which the House was able to swiftly pass legislation just yesterday, last night, uh, banning U.S. imports of Russian oil and other energy sources. Um, you know, House Democratic leaders decided to move forward with the vote, even though uh, Biden announced a Russian oil embargo the previous day on Tuesday. The Senate is not expected to consider the House passed bill with upper chamber Democrats who are worried about tying the president's hands. Uh, Speaker Pelosi said that regardless of Biden's executive action, it was necessary for the House to take further steps against Russia as Putin escalates his brutal assault on Ukraine. Um, she said, we've been talking about doing the Russian ban for a while, and we're so pleased that the president has done that. Um, she spoke by phone with uh, Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky for 45 minutes yesterday, Wednesday. Uh, she said, but you're here in a legislator. This is a democratic process where people weigh the equities, express their views. Um, and the House overwhelmingly passed the Russian oil ban by a vote of 414 to 17. Um, Zelensky has been pushing Western nations to stop importing uh, Russian oil. And so if you're Zelensky, right, and, and, and okay, we, we know that we've talked about the, the fact that the no-fly zone is going to be basically a declaration of war. The United States is trying to be, um, trying to avert World War III, you know, and, and it seems like Putin has no regard for the consequences of constantly pushing the envelope 
um, but we don't want to push his hand and have any kind of, we don't want to provide him any kind of uh, justification to escalate uh, or become hostile, hostile towards the United States. But if you're Zelensky, wouldn't you keep, wouldn't you say that as a victory in terms of, okay, you've got the United States now withdrawing other countries soon to follow soon. Um, what do you guys say? Um, well, I mean, I think for Zelensky, any show of support is, uh, you know, a, a win. Um, I mean, hell, he got S Switzerland to declare a side. <laughs> that didn't happen in World War II. Uh, so, I, you know, I think that he can count that as a win. Um, but ultimately, I don't think he can consider that he has really won anything. Uh, in the end, until the Russian forces cross the border again. Um, and frankly, you know, as, as impressive as the Ukrainian people are, the Russian military is many times larger, many times more powerful with whatever support that, you know, hands off support that the, the rest of the world gives. Eventually, that's not going to be enough if Putin keeps going. Um, so I think realistically, he's he's I mean, and end line is I don't think he's going to consider he's won until the Russians uh, have left Ukrainian soil. Um, and I don't think he's going to be able to say that he's done pushing for more mini victories until uh, another Western, really any, but uh, particularly uh, EU or American army helps, um, uh, you, you know, at some point the Ukrainian people are just not going to be able to, uh, Either basically, either Putin has got to be overthrown to to end this war because if he stays in power, he's going to keep going. Uh, he can't lose if he gives up; he loses face, and he then he does lose his power in Russia. He uh, is powerful because he's a strong man. And he looks like he's sticking it to the West. Uh, if he has to pull out without victory, then he's lost that. Uh, if Zelensky gets killed, uh, that's I think that might be like the Franz Ferdinand of. Uh, uh, of uh, World War Three, because if Zelensky goes down, then you know our shining example of why we don't need to send troops into Ukraine because we they have this leader, he's gone, and we that's too much. They, you know he's gotten away with Putin's gotten away with Georgia and Crimea. If he takes the entirety of Ukraine, I don't think the Western world can uh, stand that because that is the, that is truly an existential threat to the peace of Europe. Um, now I, I think he's got to keep pushing. Uh, until he either uh, outlasts Putin or uh, uh, gets actual military support and not just money from from the rest of the world, uh, it's it's uh, it's just not going to be enough to, to to have thoughts and prayers uh, when you're you're staring down the barrel of one of the world's most powerful powerful militaries. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead, Nick. Hundred um, percent. Right now, thanks to all the sanctions and stuff, the best Ukraine can hope for is to kind of play defense until Russia loses the ability to pay its own military, and then once we get to that stage, hope for the best. But as far as kind of drawing lines in the sand and pushing the Russians back, there's not really much that uh, the Ukrainians can do without weapons and reinforcements. The only issue is that weapons and reinforcements from other, uh, you know, for the U.S. or uh, the European Union or NATO to really sell and not gift weapons to Ukraine is, you know, uh, effectively would be to Russia declaring war on Russia. So Ukraine is 
you know, stuck between a rock and a hard place of not wanting this to turn into World War III, but also needing to assert its own sovereignty. So Zelensky would be very happy for a little bit more support. You know, there was that uh, plan that the Polish kind of announced on their own will to gift uh, old planes that kind of fell apart. He'd be very happy with something like that, but it's also a very risky outlook either way, because you don't want this to get even bigger and risk even more people. Right. And and while Americans are going to the pump and they're thinking about, okay, man, this is getting crazy. We, we don't have an insight. You know, I, I can't afford to get to work, <laughs> you know, and this just seems to be getting crazier and crazier. You know, you're seeing it, you know, folks who are on their Instagram stories, just sharing pictures of the, the outrageous gas prices and don't even go to California. I mean, you, you, I mean, gas prices that are just so unreasonable. And, and, and when you're looking at, okay, whether, whether the United States is energy independent, I was looking at an article by uh, Robert Rapier in Forbes magazine. Um, and he said, if energy independence means we produce more energy than we consume, then the United States is still energy independent per the just released 2021 numbers from the Energy Information Administration. He said, this is the definition that makes more sense to me. He goes on to explain that U.S. net imports have been declining since 2005 as a result of hydraulic factor, uh, uh, fr um, fracturing. Um, that year, U.S. net imports of petroleum and petroleum products averaged 12.5 million. Uh, during Obama's last full month in office, the number was 4.2 million. Um, when President Trump took over, the downward trend continued. Um, his last Trump's last year in office um, saw the net import number turn negative. Um, and so I remember Obama in the debate stage with McCain saying, look, my goal is to get us energy independent by the end of the decade. And a lot of folks have said, well, we haven't we have not achieved that goal. But when we're looking at the fact that the United States has produced more energy for itself than it's been consuming, I would say, look, that goal pretty much was reached. But despite all that, this whole controversy has actually given Kamala Harris a new role on the world stage. Um someone who is, I believe, you know, Clyburn and other folks were in Biden's ear during that VP nomination process. Um, they were saying, look, choose someone who can fill in, who, who can jump in in 2028 um, and take over. Uh, and, and so this is giving her the opportunity to develop those those crucial foreign policy chops. Um, Vice President Harris's admission to Poland amid Russia's invasion of Ukraine is hitting um, uh, early diplomatic speed bumps um, and this is because of a very public communication breakdown between uh, Poland and the United States over efforts to send Soviet-era fighter jets to Kyiv. Uh, the U.S. sought to protect lockstep unity with its 29 NATO allies. Um, but guess what? Now, you, the Poland wanted to have these jets, but the United States declined to go ahead and comply with that request. Um I know a lot of folks have said, look, the White House is always throwing Kamala Harris in situations where it's unfair uh, in, in seemingly impossible situations politically, uh, where there's no kind of good outcome. You're always going to come out stained somehow. I want to get your assessment on how the vice presidents handled the situation on the world stage and whether this would hurt her in the long run for her political aspirations in the future. Well, this is a difficult situation. Um, this is kind of the first public break in that um, NATO and Western and European unity that we've seen. Um, the Polish as a whole have kind of been saying, I told you so for a while. 
Um, they were the ones who were, you know, since Putin came back into power in 2008, in, you know, 2008, uh, he is, they, the Polish have been saying, you know, Putin is looking to expand back into, um, into Eastern Europe. If we let him, he will re try to rebuild the walls of the, um, of the uh, Russian Empire and will party like it's Crusader Kings three, but um, <laughs> but uh, you know now they're right. You know Russia is looking uh, to expand uh, westward. Uh, Belarus, the Baltic states, um, Scandinavia—they're all feeling the crunch of this moment. So you know Poland is very well within its its right. The Polish are very well within their. Uh, their rights to feel that their government has not been listened to. Uh, thankfully, when it comes to uh, diplomacy trips so far, Kamala Harris has a pretty decent track record. Um, there was that trip to Mexico where things didn't go so great. But more recently, as she's gone to France, as she's spoken with other European leaders, they've kind of seemed to like each other. So, you know, this does seem like a good opportunity to kind of soothe some, you know, bruised egos and smooth things over as um, NATO and the U.S. try to figure out next steps and ensuring uh, Ukrainian sovereignty. Yeah. And and the thing I tell folks is that, look, when the DNC runs its clip for the whoever the candidate is, since uh, 1960, I believe every Democratic vice president ended up becoming the nominee at some point. Uh, you're going to want to have those clips showing your candidate in tough situations uh, where it's easy to see them in the Oval Office, right? Especially if that candidate is someone who is a woman, and especially if that candidate is someone who's a Black woman. So I think, you know, these kinds of roles could be a blessing and a curse, but I think the blessing weighs more um, on this side because even if you don't, you know, you know even if the dipl diplomatic uh, trip was not 100% ideal, Look, I mean, the fact that you are able to still serve as some kind of peace broker between the Polish and the United States in this kind of um, atmosphere where there's such unity, not just on the national stage, but the world stage, um, I think that serves as a political benefit. Anyone else? I mean, I think she's done, uh, a, again, I, I think she's done about as well as she can in the situation. Uh, keep in mind, you know, Poland is right next to Ukraine. It's right next to Russia. They're very concerned about what happens if Putin succeeds again in another military adventure into a state that he does not belong in and doesn't really face any consequences for it. Uh, I think they're very worried. You know, he, he he went into Georgia, I think, 2006 or seven or eight, something like that. Uh, we don't talk about that anymore. He took over Crimea a few years ago. We don't really talk about that anymore either. He, he was perfectly fine with that right now. There's a lot of, you know, issues about whether or not he's going to be successful in Ukraine, but it's entirely possible he'll win this fight in Ukraine. Uh, the, you know, the European Union and the United States especially wants to stay out of that conflict. Well, what if he wins it, takes over the country, and a few years later he decides his next country is, uh, you know, Tajikistan or Poland or Norway or any of the other countries that are right next to Russia that the Russians have always wanted to get their hands on? I think they're very concerned about that, and they don't want uh, uh, the world to continue on this uh, sort of appeasement uh, that is has been the uh, the policy for a long time to avoid the risk of World War III. Um, but 
and no, not to be the guy on the internet who keeps bringing up uh, a comparison to World War II or the Nazis, but Chamberlain in the 1930s uh, and, and the French government in the 1930s, they were bending over backwards to appease Hitler uh, to avoid starting another war. And guess what happened a few years later? They, we had World War II anyway, but the, but the Nazi government was in charge of several more countries by the time that started. Uh, I think in you know Poland's one of the, the the fighting grounds that dealt with that firsthand. I think they're very worried of of history repeating itself uh, and basically just appeasing a dictator who's continually expanding and expanding and expanding until eventually it can't happen anymore and a war breaks out. But you know they don't have to wait until it's their border that gets crossed first. Um, now the policy of of the EU and the United States is to not. Uh, you know, escalate things and to hope that this sort of appeasement or just diplomatic uh, strategies works and that Putin loses in Ukraine and we don't have to worry about it. But, uh, you know, the Polish, they're, they're right there. They're a lot more concerned about it hap uh, happening. And, and I don't think that I think in their calculus, it's not worth it to make this bet. Uh, but, you know, Kamala Harris, I think she did the best job she could knowing that she couldn't agree with the Polish, uh, because that's not the American uh, position on things, uh, without making it a full international incident that you know she wasn't going to ever come to an agreement with the Polish government on on how to handle things here. And and it's I'm glad you brought out uh, Neville Chamberlain and everything because of the the situation with appeasement. And we we've seen folks in Ukraine, we've seen folks around the world saying. Do not trust Putin. You know, you, you, you've been acting as if he's a, some kind of reasonable negotiator, as if you can predict his next move. This is someone who is unreasonable. This is someone who is hell bent on restoring the USSR by hook or by crook. So you sitting down at the table and acting as if this is someone who is someone who um, who has accepted 21st century de democratic norms. It, it, it's just it's, it's like bringing a knife to a gunfight. You know, you're, you're not going to sit down and expect someone like that to uh, sympathize with your interests. And and usually, you know, in politics, both of us understand we're not going to get 100% of what we want, but we reach a compromise. Putin doesn't operate like that, right? Because his nature is completely antith antith uh, antithetical to anything that resembles a democracy. Um, and it made me think about, but at the same time, you know, there are some who have been saying, look, even we've already taken no fly zones off the off the table but the more we engage the more we um you know allow us troops to volunteer and to send the the, the more um used to us uh aid uh ukraine would be and it makes me think of john f kennedy's quote you know the, the he's when he was saying the bands will play the crowds will cheer um he told arthur schlesinger um, and in four days, everyone will have forgotten. Then we will be told we have to send in more troops. It's like taking a drink. The effect wears off and you have to take another. Um, <laughs> but it's different a little bit in that you have such outrage around the world uh, about the images that are being on scene. And then you're talking about the lives of children, you know, just brute force, uh, irrespective of any appreciation for human life at all. But time is slipping away. I don't want to slip in. Uh, you know, the Supreme Court showdown that's going on. We have Supreme Court. Well, first of all, we have Senator Susan Collins, uh, who had a favorable view of Supreme Court nominee Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson this week after meeting with her for 90 minutes Tuesday. Uh, but she's staying 
quiet about her support until the confirmation hearings are over. Um, last year, Senator Lisa Murkowski was just one of three Republicans who voted to uh, elevate uh, Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson to the second most important court in the country. Uh, now, in the middle of an election year, she's faced with a new choice, promoting her to the highest court in the land. She isn't quite sure yet if she's ready to do that. She said, quote, uh, this is a different game. Um, can we, should we hold our nose <laughs> for support among, you know, the, 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 the so-called moderate Republicans, Murkowski, Collins, Romney, um, as we're getting closer and closer to this confirmation hearing? Um, or is this going to be, um, you know, mudslinging dirty politics as usual, um, especially with McConnell, whose sole purpose, you know, in the Supreme Court was to pay back Democrats for what they did with Robert Bork in 1987, 1988? I think we can expect uh, a yes vote from Susan Collins. Um, the only Supreme Court nominee she's voted no on in her entire history as a senator was uh, Justice Barrett. And that was to save her own skin because she was up for election in a few weeks and didn't want to, you know, be the face of Republicans saying you can't confirm a justice during an election year when a Democrat was in office and then doing just that when a Republican was in office. Um, she is someone who has voted for, you know, who has a track record of voting for nominees on both sides of the aisle. And she kind of, you know, um, not that I would expect any consistency from her, but she is someone who has always, you know, said she cares about a woman's right to choose. And just and Judge uh, Jackson is one of the most consistently pro-abortion judges in this country. And after, you know, putting Kavanaugh and Gorsuch on the court, you know, this is kind of the least she could do. Uh, Senator Murkowski, I think in the a few weeks uh, ago, said she looked forward to voting for a candidate that she thought was qualified. So I think we can cross our fingers for her, but you know, the reality is that she's also facing a tough election. So I wouldn't, you know, necessarily hope so. Um, but the benefit is that you don't need, you know, Republican votes. You don't need 60 votes to put someone on the Supreme Court. You only need 50 plus one. And so with just democratic support, uh, Judge Jackson will be confirmed to the Supreme Court. As far as the confirmation fight, uh, Republicans do understand that she's not going to actually tilt the balance of the court. We'll see some mudslinging, but they're going to do their best to try to find a balance between being cartoonishly racist and just being regular obstructionists. And, you know, hopefully they fall on the side of caution on that one because I'm really not optimistic. And, and this is another consideration. If Markowski um, votes for uh, Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson, right, she's bound to give fresh ammunition to whoever would be her Trump-backed supporter, right, uh, to remove her from the seat that she's held for the past two decades. Um, yet if she opposes Jackson, she'll be accused of reversing course to insulate herself from campaign attacks. Um, and then possibly, like Nate bought out, you know, when we're looking at the level of attacks, we're looking at the immaturity of the level of the attacks, not based on the kinds of decisions and opinions she's she's written, but, you know, just on, you know, you, you've seen folks like Tucker Carlson kind of, what are her qualifications? Let's see her LSAT score, right? Tucker Carlson, who probably, you know, if I just want to see that man's first grade report card. That's all I want to see, right? I just want to see it. But Anyway, we've already seen some of these juvenile um, attacks on someone like Katanji Brown Jackson. No one asked what Amy Coney Barrett's LSAT score was. Nobody cared. Nobody asked what Kavanaugh's was, right? And 
all of a sudden now we're interested in these mundane things. And, and, and you know, the Alaska senator is widely viewed as one of the biggest wild cards in what is expected to be a mostly party line affair. Um, if she votes no, it's possible that she Jackson could win only two GOP votes or perhaps even just one. Um, and that would just underscore how deeply divided uh, the Senate is, especially when it comes down to these the nature of, of these kinds of confirmation hearings. Um, what do you guys think in terms of how sh how Markowski would, would navigate through this? You know, it's kind of like that darned if you do, darned if you don't situation. Um, what is your assessment in terms of what would likely play out? And I know political scientists are historically bad fortune tellers, but I just want to get your opinion on that. Uh, well, I guess I'll, I can take the first swing at this if, uh, if no one else wants to, um, I'll be perfectly honest. I, you know, I'm not that familiar with, you know, uh, internal Alaska, uh, politics. Um, you know, so I don't know. I, I think she's relatively, I think we can probably count that she is going to end up voting for, for judge Jackson. Uh, she seems to be, you know, in that swing, it's the it's sort of the 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 party line to be at the very least cagey about it until then. But she's previously voted for she you know she's throwing out reasons why she might not. But uh, you know she voted for her for you know the the circuit court. Uh, there's no real issue I think that she has brought up uh, questioning whether or not she's actually qualified, uh, or or maybe I'm wrong, but uh, or or whether or not she belongs on the court. Lindsey Graham did, although I don't know what the hell he was talking about. Um, when he, when he's trying to challenge her, um, I'm frankly, I'm more concerned about Joe Manchin, uh, because what would be really bad is if it's 50, 50, but 49 Democrats and for, you know, 50, 50 or 48 or whatever, but it's, you know, 49 Democrats. And then one of the democratic can, uh, senators says no, uh, because, uh, even she is too liberal for him. Because uh, I don't know what the hell Joe Manchin wants out, out of this uh, this arrangement anymore. Um, it, he seems to be getting more and more conservative by the day. Uh, and, you know, there's not necessarily anything wrong with that. Maybe that's his politics. Maybe that's his state politics. But I just I don't know what, what to expect of this man. Uh, he, he does not make sense to me anymore. And uh, I'm, I apologize. I don't re remember the... Uh, the election cycles. I don't know if he's up for re-election now or if it's coming up in a couple of years, but uh, I know he's uh, he's a particularly a wild card on this kind of thing, especially when uh, when he feels like his seat might be at risk uh, in in the relatively conservative state that he's from. So you know, uh, I don't think, she, but I don't think Murkowski is that much of a, a risk. I think, realistically speaking, she's just not going to say it out loud when. The rest of her party isn't necessarily on board yet. Uh, Collins, I think from every indication, she seems to be on board, but it's just not willing to officially endorse yet. Uh, I hazard guess that in a few weeks when the initial hearings are over, she would have, will probably officially step forward and say, yeah, I'm voting for her. Uh, but, you know, we'll have to see there. Um, honestly, the biggest thing I'm upset about is, is, is Lindsey Graham. Uh, trying to say she's the most radical left candidate possible. I mean, a, f a few weeks ago, uh, Professor uh, Shapiro of Georgetown University got in trouble, partially because he pointed out that she is very much not 
uh, the most uh, radical left candidate that could have been chosen, or even the most left non-radical left candidate who could have been chosen. Uh, there was a there was a better candidate from that perspective, uh, but you know, who knows what Lindsey Graham is talking about anymore? And and this is the thing when when <laughs> when Manchin voted for Gorsuch. And correct me if I'm wrong, I think it was, I, I don't think because of the political noise and theater that was surrounding the Kavanaugh hearings, uh, because you had um, the, the, the compelling testimony of Dr. Uh, Blasey Ford and everything, I, I'm not sure if he voted for Kavanaugh, but the fact that you voted for Gorsuch, right, a, a seat that was stripped, robbed away from uh, what was rightfully President Obama's uh, pick, uh, Neil Gorsuch, and you vote for that man, meet with Trump and everything. I mean, if you're not there to oppose or block certain, you know, these kind, these lifetime appointments, what are you in the Senate for? In my view, I, it's one thing to say, okay, I'm going to vote in favor of X amount of dollars going to the wall. I'm going to vote in favor of this conservative policy here. But you're talking about a lifetime appointment that you put your name on for the <laughs> etched in stone for the for, for forever in time. That makes no sense to me, you know. And so if if Mansion makes noise now i mean you just to me it's already clear but it's it's more abundantly clear in terms of how much you can trust this guy you know you took dnc campaign funds like i said about uh um the, the senator from our from arizona last week uh you took the dnc's campaign money you took it you, you took the resources you took the brand you took you took all of that and and what are you doing with it right so i just wanted to say that but are there any thoughts? Any other thoughts? I think if we get a yes vote on Murkowski, it'll probably be on the grounds of something like Native American rights or Alaska Native rights, rather. Um, that's just the realities of representing Alaska in Congress. You cannot hope to be reelected if you don't have solid support from the Alaska Native community. So that will probably be like the center of her concern. You know, Judge Jackson has promised she'll be fair and impartial as it relates to Alaska Native rights and, you know, use that both as her justification to vote yes, which she was probably going to do all along, and also as a way to, you know, brag back home about what she's done for her constituency. Um, as far as uh, Manchin, he wasn't the only Democratic senator to vote for um, Gorsuch. He no, was the only Democratic. He's consistent, though, Nate. He, voted he was the only Kavanaugh. Democratic senator to vote he for Kavanaugh, and I think of all the other Democratic senators that voted for Gorsuch, most of them lost re-election that year anyway. Um, but judges are a bit. It's you can't really attack people on voting for judges uh, the way you can for other stuff. So I think he'll play along. You know, it's you know, uh, people don't really think about the ways appointing judges to life, uh, lifetime appointments can affect their lives. They care about the price of gas and groceries. Um, and that's not a bad thing. It, it just kind of is what it is. So, you know, when Manchin has been, you know, the oil and coal kind of person, I don't think you can really, he can really worry about judges. But I do think he'll play along uh, as it relates to Judge Jackson. Obi. The Tucker Carlson thing is just super funny to me. That LSAT score video. I just saw that one time. It was just super viral. It was the comments were very funny. And I just know that even after seeing that video, it was just very interesting to uh kind of see that Senate Republicans have not really uh they've been very careful to not uh, repeat arguments that are similar to that. And so um instead they're trying to more so look more so like at a professional record and such. 
but I believe that she's very well qualified. So that's just very interesting that he made that uh, that slip up, though. I, I think it, I don't even think it was a slip up. I think it was deliberate, you know, and the fact that you're seeing them dig their heels further and further into the. It's no one. It's no longer whistles or, or innuendo. It's direct, you know. Um, but time is slipping away, and I do want to get on this, um, and that is that the Republican National Committee is suing the January 6th Select Committee after investigators sought fundraising information from Salesforce, which is a major RNC vendor. Uh, the, the Select Committee subpoenaed Salesforce on February 23rd, uh, and this is according to the RNC's court filing, for information about the party's fundraising, including non-public information on Republican donors, volunteers, and supporters, and the internal deliberative processes of the RNC. The company was due to provide the documents to the committee uh, by Wednesday. And so that's in conjunction with Stephen Miller, who is now saying, look, you're looking for um, things that are now private matters because involved with my, the fact, in addition to the fact that he has, he's still on his parents' phone plan. Um, and he's saying, look, my wife and I had a baby around this time. There were private things said between us. So I'm trying to shield this private information. And so let me kick up enough dirt to try to, you know, stir some confusion. And, you know, this kind of running out the clock that the GOP um, officials and the Trump White House administration seems to be trying to do. Um, it, it's just outstanding to me. I've been reading this book by Bob Woodward, um, Peril. Excellent read. And when you're looking at the, the length to which uh, these folks were willing to go uh, where they bring in Dr. Eastman and he basically comes up with uh, many bullet points in, a, in this series of memos. Um, in the memo, I think it was the sixth recommendation where he says, just have Pence declare that there's no winner. There's no clear winner because there's alternative slates of electors. Who authorized these alternative states? Don't worry about that, right? Not important. But the fact that they they exist is enough reason to halt everything, have Pence declare Trump reelected, <laughs> and then and, and, you know the January sixth riot came from somewhere. You know there were people who had doctorate degrees, who had legitimacy, uh, authority, uh, power, who were giving um, life to this movement that spilled over into violence, right? And so the fact that these people are willing to be like rats and slip through the corners and, and get away with these things. It's just astounding to me. But I want to ask you guys, um, are the rep efforts by the RNC and the Trump White House officials like Steve Miller uh, to delay and stall the January 6th Collect Committee's work ahead of the 22 midterm elections proving to be successful in your view? I would say no, but they don't need to be successful because Democrats are doing a good enough job of taking away their own momentum. Um, you know, courts have ruled in the past that um, there's no immunity argument as it relates to uh, specific documents. Most of the subpoenas have had to be answered, but no one knows anything the select committee is doing. Because despite the fact that they are investigating a literal attack on the U.S. Congress, they have, they've had maybe one day of televised hearings and everything else has been private and comes out through reports uh, on, you know, CNN and MSNBC. We've been hearing they're coming, though. We've been hearing the testimonies are going to be coming, the primetime testimonies. Okay, but things were supposed to be coming a while ago, you know? Where's the spectacle? Uh, 
the example I used I used uh, when I when I was last on here was Benghazi, right? Republicans knew that was not really the big thing they were making it out to be. In fact, Benghazi was actually the GOP's fault for cutting uh, security for uh, foreign missions. But they knew that it was politically damaging to Hillary Clinton's image and knew that if they played their cards right, they could keep Hillary Clinton out of the White House. So they made a spectacle out of what was nothing, and it turned out to be very successful because as soon as the uh, 2016 election was over, the Benghazi Commission closed, uh, seized their business. So, you know, they made a spectacle and it worked for their political ends. The political end for this is keeping Trump out of the White House in 2024. So, you know, where's the spectacle to ensure that Trump and his affiliates aren't politically empowered to just run for president and run the table again in 2024? It, it, you're making me think of this HBO movie um, about the, and it sounds irrelevant, but trust me, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm going to hit home, about the, con the 2000 conference, uh, election, right? And so the Bush versus Gore fight. And so the Democrats bring in Christopher Wray, who was the, uh, I believe, the deputy national, uh, the deputy secretary of defense under Jimmy Carter, someone who was well renowned on the world stage, and then they have the dog fighter, the street fighter, the someone who's not aware, uh, he's not afraid to get dirty, um, J J James Baker, for the Republicans, you know, someone who served in the Reagan administration, uh, someone who was responsible for Bush forty one getting where you know he ended up, someone who was you know just you know a top dog in, in GOP politics. And you just see the contrast. James Baker was like, do we want to be right or do we want to win? <laughs> Christopher Ray was more like, this is a constitutional process. The eyes of history are upon us and we've got to do everything according to this way as it's been done before. And not to take away from that, that you know, the, the gravity of that, but did you see the contrast just going into every single major conflict between Democrats and Republicans? The Republicans are not afraid to go to do whatever it takes to get the ends that they want. And the Democrats are so cautious, making sure all the T's are dotted, the I's are crossed. I mean, the I's are dotted, the T's are crossed uh, before things uh, go forward. And we're seeing that now. Um, I believe that they're doing a great job in compiling information. But to Nate's point, you know, the public's opinion, I mean, the public right now, right, everyone's focused on Ukraine, but we've been hearing about the select committee for months now. Um, and we haven't seen many tangible results. I know this week, I think there was a uh, first sentencing for some of the uh, rioters, but that hasn't really garnered much of attention in my view. Anyone else? Uh, no, I don't really remember seeing anything. Um, and I would, I just really quickly, I'd like to say it to uh, Nathan's point. Um, I think it's sort of dangerous to wish that the Democrats try to go toe to toe with Republicans on spectacle uh, because Joe Biden, for all of his talents, he's not good at spectacle. Uh, neither is Chuck Schumer. Neither is Nancy Pelosi. Uh, if we want to go spectacle in the on the Democratic Party, we have like AOC and the squad. Uh, you know, there are people, but they're not running the party. Uh, whereas the current Republican leadership, uh, particularly Donald Trump, he lives in spectacle. Uh and they, you know, that's the party of Reagan. Uh, they've been the party that knows how to do spectacle and make people make people understand, uh, you know, follow these really quick sound bites and these interesting things. Um, and that's just, you know, what they've learned to do for a good 50 years now. Uh, 
the Democratic Party just does not have that kind of bandwidth to be able to to go toe to toe on spectacle. I think it would be really dangerous to try to, uh, you know, you know, I live in a or I come from a fairly conservative area and most of my neighbors uh, were just celebrating, you know, uh, Donald, you know, Donald Trump survive survivor of two impeachment uh, policy that he did things that should have gotten him impeached. I think we can, I think everyone here can agree on that. I think history will probably agree on that. But at the end of the day, that was a spectacle issue. And who won that show? Donald Trump and the Republicans won that show. I think if we treat, keep trying to make this a, a fight a spectacle, uh, you know, it, realistically, we need to win a spectacle. But um, I don't think we have the ability to do that right now. Maybe when the, the, the newer, younger voices in, in the, on the left get a bit more of the influence uh, in, within the party. Maybe that can happen. But uh, Chuck Schumer is never going to have the interesting soundbite. Joe Biden's never going to have. Well, he'll have interesting soundbites, but not that are helpful, interesting soundbites, more embarrassing ones. Uh, Nancy Pelosi is definitely not going to have an interesting soundbite. Uh, I, I think we just have to try to figure out a way of, uh, you know, working around that and Hopefully let the weight of evidence, uh, you know, pull, pull a lot of the weight here. Uh, it's, it's just not it's not going to be the we got a snappy headline. Yeah. And so, you know, the, the case I was alluding to earlier was that a Texas man was convicted this week of storming the U.S. Capitol with a holstered handgun. And a, this is a milestone victory for the uh, U.S. federal prosecutors uh, in the first trial among hundreds of cases arising from last year's riot. Um, and so we're not saying that the. Uh, the process is ineffective. We're just saying that it's not gathering the attention it needs to because everything is still done for the most part in, behind closed doors. Um, and so we need some oxygen on this procedure. Um, but I do want to thank each of you. Um, I know that we've come to the end of the program. Uh, Zach Tolan, uh, Colby, uh, Matt Locke, excellent, Cassandra Noff, and Nate Honore. Thanks for stepping in. And I literally, um, you know, something was telling me, get Nate on the show uh, for tonight. And it wasn't planned or anything. I asked him to step in and he stepped in right in time for uh, Chris Johnson. So thank you uh, for being here. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for making episode 57 a great one. I hope to have each of you back uh, when you're available and willing. And I want to, like I always do, encourage the viewers to stay engaged, stay uh, informed, uh, refrain from uh, sketchy news sources. And always ask why and ch challenge the sources that you do get your news from. With that being said, I'm going to go ahead and conclude episode 57 of The Political Mic. Uh, thank you guys so much.